Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2260. Today, a very interesting conversation with a first-time author and a racer who's written a book about the dark side of funding your racing team. Be prepared to be inspired. This should be fun. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm in Northampton in the UK. Seems like I jump across the pond quite a bit lately, which is fine with me. I love my UK guests with a very special gentleman by the name of Crispian Besley. Crispian, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear? And are you ready to release the clutch? I I am indeed. Nice to talk to you, Mark. Well, thank you. We're going to have some fun because we're both uh, vintage racers. I'm a retired guy, but you just keep on going, which is pretty cool. But mostly we're going to talk about a very interesting book that you've authored, your first book. But before I give you a proper introduction, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about you, Crispin? Uh, What's a little thing that people don't know about me? Well, you've already mentioned the fact that it's my first book. Um, I used to, there are a lot of things that people don't know about me. My profession, I'm, I'm retired now, but I was an investment banker. Uh, but before I started uh, my career in the city of London in, in banking, um, I raced cars. I was um, one of these wannabe world champions. And I, I shared the track with one future world champion, Nigel Mansell. Oh, wow. Um, but se- several other Formula One drivers as well, maybe on your side of the pond. They would be less well-known, but they included uh, Kenneth Atchison, Jonathan Palmer, Mike Sackwell, who for a while was the youngest ever Grand Prix starter, and Chico Serra as well, so, several wow. F1 drivers. Yeah. Um, so I was in uh, that cohort, but clearly uh, never made the grade. So I, I never raced um, a, a period Formula 1 car, although subsequently in my historic motor racing career, I have raced a Formula 1 car. Well, very cool. Well, my hat's off to you, my friend. That is that is awesome. Those are some uh, spectacular names that you hung around with. Well, the fact that you're still racing and still having fun doing these things is most important. So uh, again, my hat's off to you. Let me give you a proper introduction here. Crispian Besley is the first time author, as I said, with a lifelong interest in cars and passion for motor racing. Already enthralled by Formula One, his first visit to a motor race aside from outings to watch Star Car Racing at Wimbledon Stadium, was to spectate at the 1974 British Grand Prix at Bronze Hatch with his father. So that gives him a little bit of a a time set here. He's done some racing himself, as he's mentioned. Recently enjoyed historic single-seat race cars, including a Cooper F1, as well as a Brabham and Surtees Formula 2 cars. Crispian's main focus has been racing historic Formula Junior, which he has raced all over Europe, in New Zealand and America, in a variety of cards, which include a Gemini, a Lotus, an Asuka, Elva, and Cooper. Oh my gosh, you're having too much fun. An enthusiast collector of classic cars, he lives in a 16th century manor house that's conveniently close to Silverstone, within easy reach of several other race circuits. Nice placement. Today, he's here to share his book titled Driven to Crime, True Stories of Wrongdoing in Motor Racing, published by our good friends at Evro. Publishing. We'll be back in just a moment to learn more about Crispian Racing and this book. But first, a word from our sponsors. They keep the petrol in the tanks here, so give them a little love, and we'll be right back. 
Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up. But my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. So, Crispy, and what a life you've lived. Uh, investment banking, banking in London, London, the finance capital of the world, really. So you were in the heart of things. But we're talking about cars today. And before we get into this book, which I find fascinating, let's talk a little bit more about what got you into racing. I mentioned attending that race with your dad when you were a kid. But something, the bug bit you and you didn't let go, did you? Uh, no, I didn't, Mark. Um I, I think it started not with racing so much. It just started like a, a lot of small boys. I collected model cars, and I've sort of gone on collecting them. So I've, got, I've, I've now got a, a couple of thousand of them in my office. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I played with cars, and I played with racing cars. I then got involved with a couple of local friends racing. I, I don't know what you call them in the U.S., but soapboxes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So just made li- literally with sort of, out of wood and with, you know, pram, old pram wheels. So that got my taste for speed. As you alluded to, 
went to watch stock car racing at Wimbledon Stadium. Wimbledon in this country is best known for its tennis, uh, the, 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 the tennis uh, championships, but there was also a stock car stadium there. And stock cars over here are not what they are with you. They're, it's like banger racing, so racing very old cars around a short sort of quarter-mile shale circuit mm-hmm. as opposed to what we call production car or touring cars over here. And that was just very easily accessible for me because it was a. I lived in London. I was brought up in London, and it, it just evolved. I was at school with James Hunt's two youngest brothers. Oh wow! James Hunt being the 1976 world champion for those uh, Formula One world champion for those of you who don't know on your side of the pond, and we then started go karting, so proper karts to, together. James, obviously, James's success helped us in our quest for sponsorship. Um, when I left school, my great friend was David Hunt, who sadly died a couple of years ago, very young. But I, le- I was a year older than him, so I left school a year before he did. And I traded, unashamedly, Mark, on <laughs> the Hunt connection yeah. to try and get myself sponsorship. My, my parents were neither willing nor in a position to give me the much-needed funding. So I had to go out myself and find sponsorship. And that's what I did. And I raced in 77 through to 79 sporadically in Formula Ford, having you know found the sponsorship, sponsorship and the commercial backing to do it. Wow. Well, it sounds like uh, you got bit by that bug and uh, continued to do it throughout your career. And now in retirement, you're still on the track. And I find that so much fun. And, you know, you listeners, we had a great chat, uh, Crispian and I, before we got on the show here today, talking about the difference between historic racing and vintage racing here, of course, in the U.S. seems to be a bit more tame. Although I know there's some drivers that can get pretty uh, fast and aggressive. But over there in uh, the U.K. and Europe, uh, you guys... You guys, what I say, you really race these cars, don't you? Uh, yeah, we, we definitely do. And I, I, I don't know whether that's because people on your side of the pond have a greater sense of self-preservation. <laughs> but, you know, we, I, I think we all, we all share the passion. I just think, the, the, you know, when I raced in the States, as we, we mentioned before the show started, people are just <laughs> rather more sensible, perhaps. The, the passion is there on both sides of the pond. Um, and we do race hard. I, I, I think part of the reason for it, without rambling too much, is that you know the UK and in Europe as well is a much smaller place than the States, uh, as we all know. And on that basis, you know, I, I can race if I want to in Europe, probably somewhere in a Formula Junior most weekends of the year. Wow. And within, within, as you said at the top of the show, I live very near Silverstone, but actually I live within. One, one and a half hours maybe of about half a dozen other circuits, well-known circuits over here. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're in, and, and therefore I get to race, I, 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 I would suggest I race more than most uh, of my American counterparts. And, and as you know, as a historic racer yourself, Mark, you know, like most sports, the more seat time you have, the better you are. Yes. And if you're racing during a, you know, a six-month season every other weekend, then you've had a lot more practice than you know some of my friends in the states who sometimes have to you know cross almost a continent or more than you know in, in our terms 
to get from one circuit to another. So the logistics are much more difficult in the U.S. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And that was always a concern of mine and just not getting enough seat time. And plus yeah. the people you're racing with maybe hadn't been in a car in a year. And so, yeah, yeah there was all that. Plus, maybe we have more attorneys over here. There's more litigation you have to worry about as well, uh, which could be could be part of the problem. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I want to talk about this book because Driven to Crime, Two Stories of Wrongdoing in Motor Racing. You've covered basically six 66 true stories that cover everything from webs of deceit, numerous crimes, including drug drug trafficking, corruption, embezzlement, robbery, fraud, murder, uh, money laundering. No doubt we've all heard of some of these stories because they became big newspaper type stories. But can you tell me first and foremost why this part of racing? Because it's kind of the dark side of racing, but it's also very intriguing. Well, it it is intriguing. And the, the genesis of this goes back to my early days in Formula Ford, where I was trying to get sponsorship, uh, and I and I became quite good at it uh, because I had to. You know, if I, if I didn't get sponsorship, I couldn't race. Right. And it struck me even as long ago as that, Mark, that there were some people who maybe uh, mechanics in a garage, maybe their their father's garage, and they worked twenty four seven. Uh, to get their car, you know, to, to buy a car, to get it prepared, to get it on the track. And they had to work really hard to buy a new set of tires. Then there were the trust fund kids who just came from extraordinarily wealthy and well-connected families. Then there were people like me who just went out and hard graft. You know, I'm not, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a mechanic. Um, I just simply, you know, I couldn't prepare my own cars. I needed money to uh, pay other people to uh, prepare my cars. And then, there was a, another uh, category of people who tended to be a bit older than I was. I was a teenager at the time who very clearly uh, was sourcing very large amounts of money from somewhere else. And, and you know, it became clear to me that, you know, where, where, where there's, as we all know in motor racing, it's like tearing up $10,000 a time, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's extraordinarily expensive. Where the, it's a very expensive sport. Where there's money, there's crime. So it's always fascinated me from the very early days as to how people paid for their habit. Uh, and as you said before the show started, you know, it's an addiction for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would argue, and, and I think you and your listeners would argue as well, that it's a healthy addiction. But, you know, an addiction is an addiction. It has to be paid for. And even when I stopped racing, you know, semi-professionally, I've always been fascinated in the commercial side of the sport, the, the main discipline over here, and I'm primarily a single-seater racer, but the main discipline is Formula One. It's always amazed me how people fund their sponsorship deals and where the money's come from. And particularly in the 90s over in Europe and Formula One, there were some very, very dodgy sponsors and team owners. And that, that that's always fascinated me. So that was the starting point. I had the idea of writing the book uh, actually when I was racing in New Zealand in 2017. And I spoke to someone who's become a good friend of mine called Howden Ganley, who's a Kiwi, ex-Formula One driver. He raced for BRM, amongst other teams, uh, uh, many other teams. And he said, uh, we were just chatting over dinner one night, and he said, I talked to him about the idea, and he said, you've got to do it. So that, that was, that was the starting point, really. I'd, I've got, uh, as you can imagine, I've been involved in the sport for a very long time. I've got a wide network of contacts. A lot of people were very helpful when they were 
journalists, uh, you know, motoring journalists, uh, authors, and competitors, and and it sort of grew from there. And when we when we came in the, in this country, uh, our then Prime Minister Boris Johnson locked us down because of COVID in March 2020. Business people were confined to home, their homes. My children came home, you know, we tried to work from home, and I thought, well. This is the ideal opportunity to put pen to paper. So I'd already done quite a lot of research. I've got a, a, a you know a pretty good knowledge. Obviously, I've got a huge library of books, and um, I used my connections and interviewed a lot of people over the phone. COVID was a, an advantage in that respect because it meant I, I wasn't able to travel to see people. So a lot of it was done on the phone, and and it, and it grew from there. So you know, it's interesting because I grew up in uh, La Jolla, California, which is just north of San Diego, a fairly fluent. Right part of the world. And in my young days, I encountered two people that ended up, they may be part of your book. I'm not, well, one of them may be, but uh, one that was funding racing teams. And I used to detail his cars and I would go over and look at what this guy was doing. And he was uh, an investor or money guy that I think ended up being a money launderer uh, in many ways, kind of a little mini Madoff, if you will. And yeah, uh, yeah so, you, you know, when you see things that look better than they should be and you kind of go, how are they doing this? Well, in that case, he ended up in prison. Another guy that uh, I did some work for, turns out was uh, building off-road vehicles to race the Baja 500-1000 and then using those to transport uh, illicit items, let's just say, uh, from yep. Mexico back into the U.S. And you look at these guys and say, wow, great business people. They know what they're doing. And then when they let you down and you realize that they're crooks, basically, uh, yep. pretty frustrating. So as we, you know, obviously we don't want to give away the whole book because I want people to buy it, but maybe you can touch on a couple stories briefly that kind of made your eyes go up because there's everything from great robbery, uh, great train robbery, getaway people to people that murdered people and bankrupted themselves and others and stock market gurus that illicitly yeah. bankrolled. I mean, do you think that your your prowess to fund your racing came from your banking prowess and your ability to help people understand value of money? Because that's what it's all about when it comes to sponsorships, right? Yeah. We're, we're taking your last point first, Mark. When I was racing, say, as, as a young professional, I wasn't in banking. In fact, I got my job in banking because I'd shown an ability the guy who interviewed me, who was the senior partner of the firm I joined, said, uh, you know nothing about business. or Sorry, you know nothing about banking or the stock markets, but you've shown a great ability to screw large amounts of money out of institutions. <laughs> that, that was the way he put it, and he was right. So oh it was self-taught in that respect. <laughs> my, my banking you know, lasted for 30 years up until I retired in 2020. Uh, sorry, 2010, sorry. So very early on, because I'd made uh, you know, sufficient to retire on, or, or I hoped I had anyway. But I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, it, in those days, this was pre-social media and everything we have now. Uh, we only had terrestrial TV coverage of a few races in those days. So it was really about trying to sell the concept of uh, and the value of sponsorship and, and applying that to motor racing. And, you know, it's, it's basically B2B, business to business selling. So that, that, that's what I learned about. But moving on to your, your earlier question about the stories in the book. First, first of all, you're right in saying that there are, I, think, I can't remember how many chapters, there are 66 chapters, I yes. think, yeah. uh, in the book. There are, so 66 true stories. There's actually more than that because 
flicking through the book, there's another, I think, 27 uh, sidebars. So some of them are one page and some maybe half pages of other people who've been involved in crime as well. And the, the other thing before I move on to a couple of examples. So, so the point is, there's an awful lot of stories in there. And I can talk you through a couple of examples for sure, which without giving away the rest of the book, hopefully sure. it'll be a teaser. But the, the one qualifier I should add before doing that is that there, there are people, this is about a book about people in motorsport who are involved in crime. So some of them are on the wrong side of crime. Some of them are absolutely, you know, people may flick through the contents page and uh, say, well, what did that guy do wrong? What did that person do wrong? Some of them are victims of crime as, as opposed to criminals, if that makes sense. Sure. Scott Tucker, um, who's currently still in prison, um, although I believe is appealing that sentence once again. Uh, the Whittington brothers, very well known. Oh, yeah. The drug runners and entertaining characters, if that's the right way of describing them. <laughs> yeah. And then, and, and then Randy Lanier, who's been the subject, uh, as Scott Tucker has actually, of Netflix documentaries. And, and Randy is one of these guys who I haven't spoken to, but he is similar to a lot of people that I have interviewed uh, in Europe who've done their time. Randy, I have to say, you know, my, my, my job really, Mark, has not been, you know, to be judgmental in any way. I've, I've just written the facts as they are, and nor conversely have I tried to you know, condone what any of these people have done. Uh, R- Randy, I, I, ironically, because of the legislation that's changed with um, what you guys call narcotics, was very, un- in my view, was very unfairly given an extraordinarily long sentence. But he's come through it. Um, he was he was released earlier than it was anticipated, but he's come through it. And he, he's one of these guys who I, I, I'm pretty, without putting words in his mouth, would say, well, I've, you know, I've done my time. And he's gone back to normal life and, you know, is, is an upright citizen in the same way that uh, over here there was a well-known uh, touring car driver and then became owner called Vic Lee. He ran a very well-known racing team in touring cars over here. And he, uh, as you alluded earlier on, was ultimately found guilty of using his transporters for um, importing drugs were sealed away in the uh, oxyacetylene bottles in the truck. Oh, gosh. Uh, this, 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 truck, this truck was going backwards and forwards to Holland to test at, at the Dutch circuit Zandvoort. Mm-hmm. And the truck, which is rather surprising because he, uh, the racing team he ran was based very near Brands Hatch. So he already had a, a circuit very close at hand for testing. And the British Touring Car Championship, the clue's in the name, British. They never <laughs> raced abroad. Yeah. So why, why would, why would a, um, a, a British Touring Car team go and race in Holland, go and test in Holland when they've right. got a circuit around the corner? Right. And the, the sort of irony in that story is that they were busted by uh, an eagle-eyed customs officer who happened to be a marshal, a track marshal, trackside oh, marshal, okay. and, and recognized this truck going back to the forwards. And thought, you know, what's going on here? Anyway, so that was the tip off to the police. Uh, Vic Lee subsequently uh, went to prison, served his time, came out, and was then caught again, not doing the same thing. Uh, well, it was it was drugs related, but was caught, should we say, aiding and abetting some drug related transactions in a, in a car park he'd been tailed, which uh-huh. involved another touring car driver called Jerry Marnie. 
and they both ended up by the end of prison. So that, that guy, Vic Lee, who's a lo- lovely, lovely guy, I might add, was done twice and got six years, served six years on each occasion. And is now back in the sport as manager, managing director uh, for a company called Corbo, who make racing seats. Oh, okay. so, and he, he originally got that job when he was working uh, on open release. He was in a, we have open prisons over here for people who aren't, uh, who are deemed not to be violent or a danger to the public. And he was a, a prison, uh, well-known open prison called Ford, not Ford America, but Ford with an E on the end. And he was on open release working for this company called Corbo. And when he came out, long story short, he worked his way through the company and as I say, is now the principal shareholder and managing director of it. So he, 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 he <laughs> redeemed he himself. Guy, but the, 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 I was making it alluding to the similarity with someone like Randy Lanier. You know, both those guys, and, and Vic certainly said, yeah, well, you know, I know people don't approve of drugs uh, and narcotics and what it can do to young people, but, you know, I've served my time. And he has. He served his time twice. And, and he is genuinely, you know, very upright and respectable citizen. And that's what the prison system, I suppose, is designed to do, is to re- rehabilitate people. Well, you would um, hope so. But give, 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 would you like me to give you a couple of other Well, examples? yeah. You know, one of the things, though, that I, I do would like to ask you is, in putting this book together, especially since it's your first book, what were some of the challenges you face because obviously as you said you're telling stories you're not making judgment uh you want to make sure these stories are accurate first and foremost because they co- they involve criminal activity and you don't want to accuse anybody of something they didn't do so a lot of research and so forth but what what was one of the biggest challenges you faced in putting this book together i think what, what well I think one of the challenges was so someone like just the guy i've just spoken about vic lee was getting him to talk to me because you know, most people who've been to prison are not very proud about it. You know, if you've got a criminal conviction, it's not something to put on your CV exactly. <laughs> no. So someone like Vic, it took a long time to get hold of. I, I tracked him down very quickly. It wasn't difficult to do that. I knew where he where he worked very easily. I sent him emails. I put a load of phone calls in. Um, and bear in mind, this is prim- predominantly done over the COVID shutdown we had, lockdowns we had over here. Right. And I guess I knew he would, I knew why he wasn't taking my calls. You know, I don't, don't, don't blame him for that. But I then, I, I, I wrote a series of emails from which he, I, he obviously checked my name out. He could, I, I made it very clear I wasn't an author, sorry, I wasn't a journalist. And I was putting this book together as a first time author. I gave him my credentials as a, as an enthusiast, um, as a historic racer. And ultimately he took the call. Do you think that do you think that helped a bit, being that you are a true racer, that there was some uh, trust there? Yeah, I, I I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I were in that position, I think uh, you know, here comes another journalist trying to make up some story for what one of those sort of right tabloid news, things. Yeah. yeah, tabloid press newspapers we have over here. But the fact that he could see, you know, and, and these days, of course, you can Google anybody and find out a lot about them. And he would have checked my name. He could seen that I, you know, I am an enthusiast, and I've raced historics for, you know, thirty odd years now, uh, plus my original racing career. So I, I think that did open doors. Yes, it helped. Um, it certainly opened doors. I mean, there are an awful lot of people, Mark, who, I, I, you know, Vic Lee gets a credit at the front of the book because he helped me. There are an awful lot of other people who helped me, but didn't want to be, didn't want their names mentioned. So there's there's a, there's a much longer list than appears. But I, I guess that was my biggest hurdle the other thing was 
uh, fact checking. Um, and the other, the other hurdle I think for me in putting it together was that, you know, I, I wanted to put the crimes in context of motor racing without giving too much anoraki type detail on racing. And I think there are a couple of chapters. I'm not, not going to mention which they are, but I think there are a couple of chapters where perhaps I've given too much information on cars or motor racing and bear in mind that you know the main readership the main demographic for this book uh, is going to be the people the sort of people who are you know you're talking to and are listening to your shows having said that there's very definitely uh, an, another demographic who is more interested in his, his primary sport may not be motor racing but who are just interested in the crime so it's, it's you know trying to get the balance to interest not just motor racing aficionados, but also people, you know, the more casual reader. Well, I'll remind you listeners, uh, this is, it, it's a long book and it's fun, 480 pages, which I would consider, I mean, full of cool stories. And it's the kind of book I like where there's all these short stories that you can jump into and get excited about and learn about, and certainly learned a lot of things going through this 90 photos. Most of them are in color, uh, really a cool book. And it would be a fun book for you also to share with your, uh, cohorts who love automobiles uh, as a gift. I love giving books as gifts. So there you go. You know, I like to ask my my guests about one special vehicle in their life. And, and this may be hard for you, Crispin, because you've driven so many cool cars. But when we think about racing, what's one car you've raced that just tugs at your heart? The car, the racing car, the competition car I'm most fond of is one of the ones I still have at home in my garage and I still race very regularly. And that's a Cooper T56. Ooh, nice. And it is a Formula Junior. It is, we were talking about safety and the structure of these things earlier on. It's a stronger, it's a tubular chassis car, but it's stronger than a lot of other cars. And it's a a beautifully balanced little car. It's a very famous car. Its sister car is sitting in the States at the moment with Bruce. Is it Canaper? Oh, Canaper. Oh, yeah, Bruce. Okay. I, I know of that car. Yeah. Well, Bruce has a sister car, um, which I think is for sale. And Bruce and I have had dialogue about this, but our cars were both, there were, there were two of the three works Coopers uh, run by the Tyrrell uh, organization. Tyrrell uh-huh. went on, of course, to become a Formula One yeah. uh, entrant. And, and, you know, with whom he won three world championships with Jackie Stewart. But these two cars were the, uh, the earliest, some of the earliest cars that Tyrrell ran. And between them, they, they won the championship and virtual races in, 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 with, uh, Tony Mads and another driver. What no one knows that the third car, which was owned by a friend of mine, we know that won one specific race. But what no one knows, despite what Bruce might say, is which of the two chassis, mine or his, won which races. But we know that, that between them, they won an awful lot. What what Bruce's car has that mine doesn't have is the fact that it was sold to somebody called Steve McQueen. Oh, that guy. <laughs> who, that guy. And, and therefore, it has a huge premium on it and is worth is worth more than my car. But, but you know, they're, they're both worth quite a lot of money. And the reason it's special to me, I guess, is because, uh, well, partly because of the success I've had in it. I won the... I, I've won the class championship in it several times since I've owned it. And I won not only the class championship, but came second in the overall Lurani series, which is a very prestigious series in Europe oh. in 2019. Um, and, you know, I, I won races outright in it on some of the classic European circuits. So that, that, that's one I'm 
probably fondest of. And it, it, you know, it's for for me for my build against all the other cars I own and I've driven. It, it, it's literally like putting on a, a, a very comfortable suit. It, it really fits me, or, or I fit it, whichever way you want to look at it. So, nineteen sixty-one, that car, right? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, beautiful car. I love it. So, I'm going to be your car psychologist today, Crispian. I'm going to crawl yeah. into your head a little bit here. If you were reincarnated as a vehicle, what would you be and why? I think I would be. I, I, I've got a Land Rover uh, Defender, which is probably about. Uh, 18 years old now and i think i'd be that um okay. because i th- because they're very strong yeah. uh they're dependable they're reliable strangely that you know there's very little electronics to go wrong in them they're practical and if i can say it on your show that they, they just there's no bullshit about them you know there's, there's um <laughs> they do just really they do what they're supposed to do yeah yeah. yeah. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> for a Brit like you. Well, I'm that Brit. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course. I always, uh, you know, I ask guests about books, but to, of course, today again, we're focused on Driven to Crime True Stories of Wrongdoings in Motor Racing by my guest today, Crispy and Besley, uh, by our friends, published by our friends at Evro. They, uh, they brought a lot of great books and a lot of great people to this show. So I'm going to enable you to do something pretty fun today. I'm going to be your benefactor. You don't have to do anything uh, illegal to go on this drive because. I'm going to provide it to you. Not that you would, of course. Uh, I'm going to put your your seat in any race car, any vintage car, newer car, whatever you want to drive. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to let you go to any track in the country. And uh, typically, I allow people to take uh, somebody with them. Now, you're a single-seater guy, so that's not going to work in a car. But you can take anybody with you, maybe as a driving coach or somebody to talk to. Uh, What does that magical drive look like for you? Okay, well, I, I, I think I, I'll answer the question in two ways. So if okay. I was going, I can't drive my race car to the circuit because it's a single seater. Right. Um, so I would drive to that circuit uh, as opposed to fly or bicycle or whatever. And I would take a port, I would drive to the circuit, I think, Mark, in a Porsche 911. Nice. Um, not necessarily the current generation. You know, I, I, I'm a, a, a historical or a vintage racer. So I'm very old fashioned and I, I, I love stick shift. All my cars are stick shift as opposed to auto. Yeah. So I'd go in probably one of the cars I sold, which was a Porsche 997 4S, a four wheel drive, wide bodied. And I, and it's one of the best balanced and most perfect cars I've ever owned or driven. Nice. As my passenger, I would take my girlfriend and I'd probably share the driving with her. And I would go, bear in mind I live uh, where I do in the UK, I would go to one of my favorite circuits, probably would be Goodwood, actually. But if I was being adventurous, a better drive would be through France down to Monaco. So one of those two circuits, (laughs) at which I would then drive my single-seater, probably my Cooper, but I've raced also uh oscars which are like little baby maseratis at both those circuits and the person that i would have there who i'd share my girlfriend would be uh on the sidelines i guess uh watching and cheering me on hopefully uh but i'd I'd share everything else with the guy who prepares my cars and is my uh mechanic when i'm at the circuit he's a guy called chris beaumont uh who is a, a, a very very blunt kiwi (laughs) <laughs> who uh, we get on with each other very very well we nice. we don't have to communicate with you know many words he knows what i want from a car and he knows i can't i can't 
translate what I want to the car without him. So we, we work very well together. Ah, sounds like a magical trip. And being a guy who loves Porsche 911s like I do, you're a man after my own heart. Love those cars. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. You've taken us on a magical ride, but listeners, more importantly, get your hands on this book, uh, Driven to Crime, because it will take you on a very intriguing ride into perhaps the darker side of racing, but people's characters and why they do things and what they've done. Uh, This book is full of a lot of surprises, a lot of things I didn't know about from the past some of them i had but a lot of them i didn't so uh get your hands on this book and i want to before i ask you for some parting words of advice and wisdom i want to do a shout out to our mutual friend judy stropas i mean judy just keeps bringing me awesome people and judy is she's so well known everybody knows judy so judy thank you for uh, bringing me another winner here today with crispy and this has really really been cool i could talk to you for hours could you leave us with some parting words of wisdom or advice uh, that maybe writing this book has taught you I'd probably say never give up, you know, and if at first you don't succeed, keep on trying, because that's what I've had to do in, in different facets of my life, and that in, that includes writing a book for the first um, and probably the last time. <laughs> well, nicely done. You know, it's funny, I've interviewed hundreds of race car drivers, every one of them, and I was wondering if you were going to say it, that's the quote they give, never give up. And of course, being a Brit, that applies to a a man that was in the history of the UK, of course, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, never ever, Absolutely. ever give up. So yeah, or when you're racing, as he said, marching through hell, just keep on going, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that's what he said. Uh, well, this has been a wonderful talk, and I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. As I said, uh, we could talk for hours. I got to get over there to Goodwood. Uh, maybe I can have you show me around the track there. That would be pretty darn fun one of these days. I'd love to. Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, Crispian, thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and sharing this wonderful new book. Well done, my friend. For a first book, bravo. Very well done. <laughs> Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.